I am a human being and I killed human beings. Before I knew it, I'd fired four shots at the door. I kept on shouting for Reva to phone the police. Tests are underway to determine if a serial killer is on the loose in Centurion, Pretoria. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. In South Africa, 58 people are murdered every day. Would have been accurate the last time we recorded this podcast. In South Africa, 71 people are murdered every day, according to the latest statistics. These are the stories of the criminals and the people who hunt them. My name is Paul Llewellyn. I'm a journalist and filmmaker curious about Africa's killers, criminals, and the cops who catch them. And joining me to discuss crime on the continent, as always, is Jared Labaskakni, the former cop and current head of LNS Threat Management, who led the investigative psychology section of the South African Police Service from 2001 until 2016. In his time there, he worked on over 300 serial murder and rape cases, and he is the profiler. Please visit our YouTube page and subscribe. That's youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Profiler Africa. Do subscribe and encourage your friends to do so too. We're available wherever you get your uh, podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, all those kinds of places. Simply search Profiler. Again, please share the link that you like to use with friends at the office, in the gym, or uh, in your murder cult. Gerard, it's lovely to see you again. It's been a while. So now 71 people are murdered every day in South Africa. So... Our podcast has not, the, the 19 episodes that are sitting online have not been helping crime at all in the country, as has nothing else that anyone's been doing. It's all just been getting worse. That said, let's not start on a downer. Mm. Let's start on an upper. How are you, Jared? What's been going on great and positive in your life as a profiler? Well, hello, Paul, and hello, listeners. Yeah, I think um, things have been going good. You know, it's summer, which always is, is a good time for me. I, I just don't like the winter months, so it's nice that things are warm, feeling more like happy and about. Uh, Crime-wise, I mean, obviously the, the case we're going to be talking about today, which is for me was a very important case in my career, he's been convicted, he's been sentenced, and he's doing his time in jail, and that's great. And you're right, today's case, I think, is just lots of twists and turns and lots of... Um a lot of things you see happening a lot in South Africa, but certainly a guy who really tried his utmost to kind of weasel his way out of, of, of um, being held accountable for, for quite a mm. brutal act. Um, I'm going to be very interested to discuss his psychology in particular. I think that's something I'm very curious to understand because I think it speaks to a lot of the kind of issues. I, I'm wondering, I'm curious to know if it'll speak to a lot of the issues that we see with just kind of men in South Africa not being able to handle their rage very well. Um, he's certainly an extreme example of that. Um, I do want to say that the one thing we're going to try and focus on in the podcast is two things. Well, two things we're going to try and focus on. One is consistency, because I think that's been our biggest problem. We've got 19 episodes up, but we do want to be a bit more regular, and we've kind of had a sit-down and a discussion about how we can do that, and I think we've kind of figured that out, and so uh, our plan is to be uh, bringing you an, an original new episode every week, which is something we've spoken about before, so, you know, let's, let, let's not talk about it, and let's just do it, so that's the first thing, and the second thing is the feedback on, um, on me not talking as much as I do, apparently, <laughs> apparently I talk too much, um, you don't talk enough, I talk too much, which I'm doing right now, so let's jump into our first case, Andrea Fenter, the murder of Andrea Fenter, let's go right back to where this starts, Andrea Fenter meets a man. Yeah, sure, so I th if I recall correctly, she met Gerard Janse von Fieren, uh, 
about 2007, if I recall correctly. Yes. Um, I, I think it was a wedding. Uh, they start to sort of date. Um, you know, he's... Um, he, at that point, I think he was living overseas. You know, they, they start to hit things off, and then she goes to visit him. You know, you know, things go okay, although at one point he's angry with her and doesn't want to give her a pass or ticket back, and, and that gets sorted out. She comes back. And thereafter, sort of, the relationship continues, and it almost follows, sadly, one of these classical textbook examples of domestic violence, mm. of a guy who engages in controlling behavior. You know, you can't speak to other people. He, you know, he has a fit if she smiles at someone else um, or if he doesn't know where she is. Uh, and so as time goes by, you know, physical violence towards her, injuring her, throwing her to the ground, hitting her, slapping her, strangling her, sometimes to the point of her sort of losing control over bowel movements, you know, it goes on towards sort of protection orders that are later taken out, which he just, you know, just ignores he just doesn't have any feelings for protection orders and the cops on the same side are not really doing their job properly you know they they do contact the cops when he's transgressing a protection order and they don't do anything or they phone him and say hey don't do that again um but there's no real consequences for him uh for when he does transgress an order of the court which he had obtained and and of course as we often see with these with a lot of domestic violence relationships there's sort of this splitting up back together, splitting up back together, splitting up back together. And part of that is often this person breaking down their female partner. And of course, this happens in same-sex relationships also, but just for the sake of this case, it's when I refer to it as a, same, uh, as a you know, a, a male and female relationship. Um, and, and essentially, you know, she kind of breaks her down, you know, you're not worth anything. And that often is what one of the things amongst many that keep people in these horrific relationships. Um, but as time goes by, um, you know, I, guess, I guess she more solidifies that she wants to get away from this. She finishes her studies in, in, at Potts University. Uh, she was studying accounting. And essentially what happens is she finishes her degree, and she, and this would have been at the end of 2010, and she says to her mom and dad who stay in Rustenburg, you know, listen, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to finish, get my qualification, I'm going to look for a job, and I'm going to move. And I'm not going to tell anybody except you, obviously mom and dad, where I'm going, where I'm staying, you know, new phone number and who I'm working for. And the parents support this because they can see that it's just this guy is a terror. He would, he, amongst other things besides abusing her, threaten to kill her parents, um, threaten that if she doesn't behave, he's going to drop her off naked in a township and black people are going to rape her, you know, sort of bringing this whole racist element into everything. And he was himself a rampant racist, Gerard uh, Johnson von Fieren. Um, and terrorizing her family, and if you leave me, I'm going to kill your parents. You know, so really, lots of things that keep people in these horrific relationships. In South Africa, the statistics are interesting. In the world, something like 27% of women and girls aged 15 and older have experienced physical or sexual intimate partner violence. 27%. In South Africa, the figure is a third, up to 50%. Mm. So it really is a, a major issue. And I've, this is one of those things which has come up on the podcast and where it's a case of I always recall that whenever we've spoken about things like rape, you always talk about the fact, which is you know not necessarily always a factor in intimate partner violence, but just when it comes to a statistic like rape, how much worse it is mm. in South Africa in, 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 in reality as opposed to what the statistics yeah. are that are published every year, that it's potentially something as 20 times as yeah. bad as the figures that are being released by Becky yeah. once a year. So, so if you look at, I mean, whenever you look at crime stats, they kind of, the safest way to, to make stats comparable 
is if you calculate it per 100,000 people of the population. Otherwise, if you say in South Africa it's this percent, that percent, you're not comparing it adequately because population sizes differ. So when we compare it for intimate well, femicide in general, um, the, a study we did that I was very much fortunate to be a part of with the Medical Research Council that does really amazing studies when it comes to you know femicide and, and, crime, and sex crimes, they did a study in 1999, 2009, they repeated it, and 2017 repeated it, and I was part of the 2017 project. And the percentage per 100,000 in South Africa went, it actually dropped in, um, from 1999, it was 24.7 out of 100,000. In 2009, it was 12.9 per 100,000. And 2017, 11.2 per 100,000. But the global figure is 2.3 sure. per 100,000. So we, even with it dropping a bit, um, between 1999 and, and more recently, we are still, what's that, almost like four or five times mm-hmm. uh, and when it comes to within femicide, because femicide is the murder of a woman. doesn't matter what the motive was. But when you look specifically intimate partner stuff, you know, we were 99, 8.8 per 100,000, 5.6 per 100,000 in 2009, and 4.8 per 100,000 in 2017. But the global average, remember, 4.8 is the most recent stat. The global average is 0.8 for intimate partner femicide. So again, we are like four or five times what the global rate is. Per and thousand. this is not something you can put down just to the fact that, you know, we have cases that are reported on. We're talking about countries that will have even more accurate reporting potentially yeah. on kind of these things and statistics available to them. Yeah. Um, and remember, murder at least... As long as you find the body, you can say it's a femicide, it's a dead woman. You know, whereas sex crimes and domestic violence often doesn't get reported to the police. So when you're talking murder stats, you kind of, unless your country just doesn't have accurate stats at all, like in some very undeveloped countries. But, you know, femicide is, as I said, it's basically, femicide is really, is there a dead woman who was murdered? You know, and and so those stats tend to be more accurate than, like, as I said, sex crimes and domestic violence, because there often it's impacted by people just don't go to the police and report these things. Gerard's history, do we know much about his background prior to his relationship with Andrea? Does he have a background of of similar behavior? You know, so yes. Now, and this is always a difficulty with, you know, what we've discovered from an investigation side and what you can introduce in court. Mm. And introducing someone's previous bad behavior, like a previous conviction, you can't do during the trial. Because they'll say that's prejudicial. To say that you have five previous convictions for domestic violence while you're still leading the evidence of the current case, they say, but that's prejudicial. If the court hears that, then they're more likely to convict you. But you have to judge each case on its own merits because Mm. the fact that you've done something five times before or ten times before and been convicted of it isn't proof that you've done this one. So that's why things like previous convictions are only introduced at sentencing after you've been found guilty or not. Mm. So it would sway the mind, and I think it's understandable, of the jury, if you had one, or here in South Africa, of the, of the judge or magistrate. So a lot of these things that we knew about his previous behavior from having interviewed various people, including ex-girlfriends, he had a longstanding history of domestic violence towards previous girlfriends. This mm. Andrea was not the first person he'd exhibited that behavior. But we also know, again, from interviews from um, his mom and other people, that there was domestic violence in his parents' relationship. And in, in many ways, Gerard was very similar to his father in how he treated women and his view of women. Yeah. Um, and that's why Gerard's mom left his, his dad because of this pattern of domestic violence. So there's almost like this family history or, or learned behavior to some degree 
of how do we treat. So you have the genetic, that's sort of biopsychosocial. You've got the genetic predisposition, but you've also got what he was seeing um, in his family relationship um, towards women. Let's just take a little bit of a diversion. I want to ask you a question. You are given the role of being the national psychologist, and you need to deal, and you're given the task of dealing with um, um, men's behavior towards women and children in South Africa. Mm. What would, like, what would, where do you think some of the root of this problem is, and what kind of, what do we need to do to address this mm. problem kind of globally in South Africa? Well, I think definitely one of the biggest ways you're going to impact it is if we can get the message into homes where children are that this is not acceptable behavior. And that's, that, you know, that comes with making, you know, communicating the message women are equal or of equal value um, in society, that, you know, have the same status and rights as men, uh, that women are not seen as something less worthy and um, less meaningful in society. So that's one of the important messages we need to get across to children. Um, and that, you know, using violence to solve any problem, domestic or otherwise, is not an acceptable solution. So that is a message that has to be educated to children from a very young age. Women are equal, and violence is not a solution to get people to do what you want. It's not acceptable. So that's the starting point in changing long term. So it's changing attitudes in the same way that, you know, 50 years ago, what was the attitude towards smoking? Very different towards the attitude nowadays. And why? Because of public information, campaigns, restrictions on advertising, et cetera, et cetera. And that's kind of, in a way, what you have to do with negative attitude in society towards other things. Um, and then secondly, that when people do this behavior, that they're going to be effectively investigated and prosecuted. So that's the other side. Because again, if you feel there's no consequences for your behavior, it doesn't matter what attitudes you may or may not have, uh, what laws we have, what uh, punishments we have if you don't think you're going to be caught and convicted with any level of certainty. And that's the same for any kind of crimes, really. That there will be consequences. And you know, if I lift a hand, oh my goodness, I'm going to get arrested and I'm going to get convicted. I'm going to spend some time in jail. Yeah. So there's a carrot and a stick. Yeah, and we can't keep the lights on. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Because... You'd think that, you'd, you, you know, surely you go, where is the dramatic intervention? Not just, I mean, it's gotten to the point where it shouldn't just be of, you know, everyone, it's always in South Africa, it feels like, oh, we've got to wait for the, the government to do something about it. It feels like it's surely we're at the point where the nation themselves, where the women of the country kind of, it, it has to exist, you know, an opposition to the, this, or this dialogue, this conversation needs to happen outside of just the 16 days of activism mm. at the end of every year, when it feels like there's some kind of lip service paid mm. to this problem, but there's nothing really... It is surely like the fundamental problem with mm. South African it's got society. To, it's got to be a message, like you said, you, it's, you can't expect the, the people who, who support this attitude to be the ones to educate their children differently. So we, we do have... To, government does have to take an effort to bring to this message across in schools... Mm-hmm. Um, enforce it in schools uh, of the equalness of all people and the value of all people. Uh, can public campaigns out there in the workplace, etc., um, with when it comes to sexual harassment policies? So it really, unfortunately, does have to come from the outside because the people who support these attitudes aren't going to be the ones to mm. teach their children differently. Of course, the other thing in South Africa is the is the the aspect of just the the patriarchal nature of mm. the society and the fact that yes. You know, you may go and stand in a queue and vote for a particular system, but that is not really affecting your behavior back in the house because, Mm. you know, you may be voting for 
equality and and kind of putting the your mark of support for your woman's equal rights but then you're going home and behaving like you know you know like mm. behaving like a behaving abusively mm. um you know um it's just like the two haven't connected it's like i think the nation needs to understand that there's a responsibility that comes with living in a dem democratic society under a constitution where everyone's rights are guaranteed regardless of kind of race mm. color or creed or gender um so it's such a big topic and it's something we've spoken about plenty of times on the podcast i it, it's one of those ones where and we can kind of um, point out the fact that it's probably i think the biggest problem in the country these days forget things like load shedding um maybe cases like this do illuminate it a little bit um, where you can see a little bit of familiarity with the patterns that happen in in, in your life <laughs> So what happened? What happened next with with Andrea? I mean, she tried her best. She realized that she was in an in a situation that was dangerous to her with a guy who was obsessive and had issues, and she tried to get out of that situation. And the legal system, she did everything that she was supposed to, mm. you know. And the, the legal system failed. I mean, this is why when people sort of say which case stands out out of your career, it's this one because it was it's so unfair. All the things. This, here is a young girl who turned, did all the right things in terms of trying to change the situation, what mechanisms were there in terms of protection orders, and the system failed her. And then it failed her again, as we'll get into the rest of the case study, and after she was dead, it failed her, etc. So she relocates to Johannesburg, uh, gets a job in an accounting firm as per her qualification that she studied, uh, was initially staying with a friend in Joburg, then decided I better, it's safer if I move out, you know, for her, and, you know, if something does happen. Um, and she doesn't want her friend to become the target of the wrath of Gerard if should he, you know, find out where she's staying. Uh, she gets into a little flat in Sabaya Sands, a very nice place uh, in Four Ways in Johannesburg near uh, Monte Cassino. Um, is working happily. I think she's got a new car. I think she had a new cell phone number. And Gerard obviously realizes he doesn't know where she is and can't get hold of her. But he knows that she studied accounting. So he literally phoned 34 accounting firms in Johannesburg until who answers the phone? Andrea Fenter at number 34 or 35, and essentially forces his way back into her life. And I can imagine from her side thinking, what else can I do? I have relocated. I'd taken protection orders previously. I relocated, I, you know, to a different town. And it is so difficult as a victim to get out from underneath. Yeah these manipulative people isn't it and and there were emails that i that i have seen where after this after he found her again where she's sending emails to mom saying mom what help me what what do i do now mm. what's you got to find a solution for me because i cannot get away from this guy and then you can really read the desperation in her voice where she's saying to her mom please do anything you know you almost feel like she's almost thinking you know can you get someone to go and rake this guy's knees, you know, to make him get the message? That's, you know, not, he just, he doesn't ask that, but that's kind of the, 
the desperation you read almost between the lines in, you know, what else must I do? What do you do as a family, though? I mean, there's only so much you can do, isn't there? I mean, you know, it's horrific. And I think that for the poor parents and family members, you can see this and feel so helpless. And I think as a parent, you want to go there and just do something to this guy. Um, but, you know, you, if you want to stick with the boundaries of the law, you know, you, you've got to try and force the police to go and act, get him arrested. If he lays a hand on you, open up a criminal case and, and hope for the best that that's going to keep him at least for a period of time in custody. But we also know that people get bail while their, tra- their trial is awaiting. Um, and what are they going to do to you then? So I think it's this fear of, and a lot of victims said, if I take a step, will it not actually make things worse? And sometimes having a horrible, a horrible situation that you understand is better than taking that step that might push it over the edge. And I understand that. Unfortunately, police see it very simplistic. Well, you need to go open up a case. But, mm. you know, but the police are also not going to give you protection. They're not going to stand outside your door and protect you. So, and, and I think because we don't have a lot of faith in the, in the law enforcement system in South Africa that the cops are going to be there in two minutes when I phone them, mm. because we know they're not based on the statistics, people often feel like it's perhaps better to try and navigate this horrible situation than to take those next steps. We have a system, a police system, that's going backwards. And yet what we really need is is a system that's able to adapt to the world that we live in. You'd think that in this day and age, the law had aligned itself to um, social and digital media Mm. and the impact that the a the kind of the tool that that is for people who are stalkers mm. who are obsessed obsessed types like this guy um you'd think that there is kind of clear law to identify this because i imagine it happens a heck of a lot these days from mm. that guy that just won't stop you know phone bombing you at two o'clock in the morning um right through to the, to, to to a man like Gerard who is kind of becomes the extreme Yep. version of that and ends yeah. up committing murder um you know i mean there's again it's one of those discussions where it's like there's not even a law to protect to identify stalkers that speaks to that reality is there could you just mm. talk to that a little again yeah so i mean in south africa we don't have stalking laws um or there's no crime yes. defined as stalking so you cannot charge someone in south africa with the crime of stalking now that doesn't mean that when someone's stalking you, well, you can't do anything because a lot of stalking behaviors do contravene some existing law. So if I am um, hacking into your Facebook account or your phone or that's against the sort of cyber crimes, I think it's the Cyber Crimes Act. Um, If I am insulting you and saying derogatory things, that's criminal injuria. Uh, If I, you know, scratch your car, that's malicious injury to property. If I push you and hit you, that's assault. Mm -hmm. Um, if I come into your house without permission, that's trespassing. So there, a lot of stalking behaviors do meet an, an existing law, and you will be charged with that specific crime. But those are very often not... It's not very user-friendly. It's not very it? significant. I mean, charging someone with criminal injury, they're not, not going to arrest the person. But also, as a victim, you need to be able to... You just want to articulate that this guy is stalking me. Yeah. You know, these are the things he's doing. And I... And I as opposed... So, you know, you're not necessarily as, as well read in the... You have to be quite so, a bit more sophisticated to be able to go and identify specific laws that are being broken. And they it often, doesn't make it user-friendly. Like yeah, they say. don't represent and they don't often really convey the overall umbrella of the stalking behavior. 
And, and at these might be opened up at different police stations because he scratched your car at your place of work, which is, you know, Ramberg police station. But he's done this to you at your house. That is, um, you know, I don't know, whatever this side's put, Honeydew police and station. And we know how well that's going to work mm. in this current system. Yeah. You're going to get nowhere. So and, and even if you're convicted for, of something like criminal injury, you're not going to go to jail for it. So it's not a solution to keep this guy away from you because he's going to be sitting in jail for the next year or two. And very often, as, as victims say, but won't that make things worse? And, and often, I've never met a jealous, controlling, possessive ex-boyfriend who is happy that you've opened up a criminal case against him and that he might get convicted. That exactly. usually does anger them. And victims realize this, but cops don't get it. Well, why don't you open up a case? Yeah. Well, because he could kill me if I do. Three years of animosity building up in jail do not help the situation. You're right. Absolutely. Um, and, I mean, in this case, what's interesting is how, it, how her plight goes right up to the point of her death. All of this is kind of relevant to her reality, right up to her death. I mean, she's calling for help. She's screaming for help in the parking lot of her complex with mm. people around her, and he's still committing violence against her in front of people. Yeah. You so know, even that can't keep him mm. away from her. Yeah, I mean, so this, this sort of all culminates in the, on the 2nd of May, 2011. So, yeah, so 6.20 uh, on the 2nd of May, it was a Monday morning. It was a public holiday because the 1st of May on the Sunday was a, was a public holiday. Um, so, obviously, you know, still a quiet time for everybody, chillaxing on a public holiday. And she's heard running, heard screaming running to, and seen running towards the, the front entrance security room the, where the cars come and enter and, enter and leave the particular complex. And with Gerard Janssen van Fielen running behind her with a knife in his hand. And he runs up and basically catches up to her at that sort of security guard's little room in between the in, in entrance and exit for the vehicles at the, at the front of the complex. And essentially, you know, basically stabs her some more. We think he stabbed her while she was running also. Um, and then basically the security guard says he then, you know, she falls to the ground. He comes behind her, lifts her up, and basically slits her throat twice. Um, then sort of confronts the security guard, who's he's not an armed security guard, unfortunately, so I think it's a bit unfair to expect him. And, and, the, and Gerard Janssen van Furen was a very big guy who was allegedly doing steroids at the time. So this poor security guard, who's basically, Gerard sort of half comes at him with a knife, and then he backs off, and he starts obviously calling for backup. Um, and Gerard then basically cuts his own throat and lies down next to her um, in, the, in the sort of driveway of, this, um, of, a, of the complex where she stays. And, you know, obviously the police all are... very dramatic. Very dramatic. You know, he then takes he off his jacket. He final words, like, it's all done now or something like that. Yeah, so he takes off his jacket, puts it down, lies down next to her. You see him doing something, taking something off that was around her neck, throwing it aside. Yes. And basically lies down next to her body and she's not moving. You can see, we see, we know this because some of this is now on CCTV footage. We don't see the actual stabbing because unfortunately the camera wasn't aimed okay. at where that where the incident took place, which is right outside the guard hut, the camera was aimed more at the, in, the, the driveway that where the cars come out. So we see him then bring her body, plonk it on the ground. Um, he lies down next to her, then takes off the thing around her neck, throws it to her side, and then kind of lies there, and eventually you see the paramedics, um, paramedics arriving. So um, she's basically dead at the scene, and you can see on the CCTV footage she's not moving, you know, very soon after the, her throat was cut. Um, he arrives, the police paramedics, sorry, the, the police and paramedics arrive, they treat him, they manage to stabilize him, and he's eventually taken off to the hospital. Um, 
the you know police then go and and think oh hang on this is a domestic case maybe there are kids in the flat because obviously they don't know the, the ins and outs of who's who and they go to her flat um and look inside on the bed they see the bed is made the pillows are in place uh her laptop is open and there's blood on the bed there's a bedside table with the uh, two plasters that are covered in blood uh there's blood and what appears to be her hair in her toilet bowl in her flat so clearly something had happened in her flat um that you know this incident didn't just you know kind of take place outside mm-hmm. um they go to her car and they actually see what looks almost like a noose around the seatbelt it's and, and it turns out to be the same item that he removed from her neck it was one of those and these seem to be these gym straps they're almost like i describe it like a karate belt type of material and it's about i would say you know half a meter long maybe half a yard long mm-hmm. and this particular one in her car had been looped as like a loop and then cable tied so it almost looked like this was something that he would get her in that seat put a seatbelt on and then pull the noose over her neck so she can't easily get out so the the, these are velcro straps or whatever what kind of straps they don't actually there? have anything so he in this in the car oh, like those rubber those them. rubber resistance things or no it's oh. it's made out of material oh, like, a, like almost okay. like a karate belt oh, so, okay i don't know exactly i, I guess they wrapped around their hands when they're doing weights i, oh, I, mean, I, see. Clearly okay. I, I don't uh, lift weights at the gym okay. um so this now tells us that the story has a little bit of history something happened in the flat and then of course the rest of it happened outside the flat they also though in her car find a bunch of keys the dad finds keys and he realizes but these aren't andrea's keys they're not the work her workplace's keys and it turns out that these were gerard's keys that were in her car and when they go eventually a couple of days later to gerard's flat with the investigating officer and gerard's dad and of course andrea's dad the keys open up his flat so we confirm that those were her his keys in her car and inside we see her overnight tog bag a little toiletry bag and blood on the floor and that blood is later forensically linked to andrea so we know now this incident started at his flat they must have then come in her car with this noose thing attached to the seat belt so essentially indicating that he she was not necessarily voluntarily going back to her flat um and something happened most likely in relation to the computer that he was maybe forced to to open up and show us items any and blood or anything in the car that would suggest that the the violence was happening no so so based quiet. on the photographs that I've you got here in front of me there was no indications of blood in the car okay so it's unlikely she was stabbed in the car so the actual so all the major violence happened once they'd gotten to yeah. her flat yeah so you so you so the idea is that they an argument started at his house mm-hmm. he then ties her up in the car basically mm-hmm. to make sure that he can get her back he to can get her back to, to her, her place so it was important for him to get her back he wants to now yeah. look at something on the computer yeah. um which has obviously added to the rage and then it's escalated to the point that he's physically attacked her with mm-hmm. a knife and he had a, also a knuckle a knuckle knuckle, dust. d- knuckle duster with yeah, him in his he? in his uh, yeah um all right we'll carry on then yeah so um so this tells us that this was not just a snap this yes. was and we know there's a history of domestic violence so um that again is essential in court to try and illustrate as far as you can introduce that evidence that you know this was not a guy happy go lucky wonderful guy and one day he just commits this out of character crime mm. we have a guy who's threatened to kill her who has assaulted her uh, he's threatened in the past he's going to slit her throat we have that in statements and affidavits from other people so 
in a way, this is, I wouldn't say it's predictable, but it's not surprising no. where this ended up. It's sad to know, you know, when you hear about things like the toiletry bag being found at his place. She's obviously, he, she's really gotten, he's really pulled her back into this thing. Because yep. yep. it is easy to go, oh, well, you know, he's got this history and she, she put herself in this situation time and again. Mm-hmm. But again, it just speaks to the, to, the, to the nature of abuse and how difficult it is to break this cycle especially when you have tried to use all the mechanisms available to you and from the state side they didn't do their job she was still alive whether um whether fatal wounds had been um you know made upon her um at the time that she's running to the security guard she was still alive and right even right even when she's with a security guard there's people coming out of their apartment that's when he slits her throat she's still not safe she was you know it's just the inevitability of of what happened to her is just so sad isn't it yeah unfortunately um what 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 was his behavior like in the kind of the aftermath then of, of, of the crime. What happened to him yeah. in, in the immediate aftermath of the crime? So as I said, the paramedics arrive, they treat him, they save him. He gets sent off to hospital where he's under police guard. Uh, he's obviously um, arrested um, and he he's, bail is denied. So he, he twice applied for bail in the magistrate's court. So obviously bail is when you're released out pending your trial so that you're not kept in custody and, and you know, the conditions and requirements you have to meet. So we successfully opposed bail twice in the magistrate's court and I'd written a report which was used as, to, as an argument to oppose bail. And then in December of that year, of 2011, so he's, about in, he's, in, he's in custody in, at the waiting trial section of the prison for about eight months. We suddenly get a um, phone call from the dad and the dad says, hey, he's got bail. I'm like, no, we, we opposed bail. He said, no, no, he went to the high court and asked the High Court to review his denial of bail by the Magistrates Court. And the High Court granted him bail. Now, I was very angry because I didn't know anything about this review. Uh, and what I would have liked and expected is that the prosecutor, who would have dealt with it in the High Court, would contact me as the main wit- one of the main witnesses in the, in the Magistrates bail application to say, listen, um, there's this appeal or review I'd like to speak to you about it so I understand what you were saying. Is this the same prosecutor who would have dealt with it in the lower court? No, this would be a different one because oh. it's now in the high court. It's, oh, it's, a, okay, it's an advocate. So he wouldn't really have known, the, known exactly the details of the history. So, and it wouldn't just be the case that this lawyer would naturally kind of get in touch with the prosecution team from the other case to go, what, are, what do you know? He sh- I would guy? say he should you know, want to speak to the detective, I think, who was testified, and me as the main yes. expert witness, I would think, if anything, to just familiarize himself with exactly what was the circumstances. I mean, I would have said to him, great, I'll sit next to you while you're arguing this, mm. that I can just highlight if they're getting something wrong, yeah. um, and which clearly didn't happen. And if you read the judgment by the judge when he granted him, it's very clear that the judge misunderstood the message I was trying to convey. He said, because I'd said that this guy's a great risk, and also he has transgressed all the previous protection order requirements. Now, if you see the protection order as an instruction from the court on how you're supposed to behave, and then you see bail requirements as an instruction for the court how you're supposed to behave, he didn't abide by the protection order instruction from the court, so why do you think he's going to abide by the bail? But the court just said, well, these two were back together with each other dating, so therefore the protection order doesn't mean anything. So, so that's not the point I'm raising. Yeah. So 
Um, very frustrating when I finally got that judgment, which is available uh, publicly, um, to see the judge misunderstood it. And if I'd been there or consulted pre with that advocate who was representing in the high court, I would have made sure that he understood that, that the essence of what I'm trying to convey in my evidence was he doesn't abide by court rules. Mm. And, and sadly, um, he was granted bail. And obviously then, you know... He, look, he managed to work the system and slip through a crack. That's really what happened here. Yeah. If, am I, can I say that? Yeah, you essentially. Would I, I be mean, wrong in saying It's a legal that? avenue he, he could pursue to yeah. go to the high court to, to review it. Um, if you play the system or if you take part in the system, it, it can, you know, you can, you, if you don't, you're not going to find those yeah. little exit points, are you? Yeah. So, yeah. And, and, and you can kind of count on the fact that in South Africa, chances are the prosecution won't come and speak to you or won't speak to the <clears> detective. Or won't really, because he's probably got a really high caseload and workload, and you know, or he didn't just didn't have someone didn't put himself in the way of somebody like you who was really familiar with the case and with this guy um, to help them to prepare. To, you know, to make, and I don't, I don't know what decision. their normal um, procedures are for reviews. Because I mean, I've never had one of my cases reviewed in the high court for bail, so I don't. I mean. I don't know what they should have done, but one would think that you would want to make sure you, you've briefed yourself completely about the case and what the issue is and not yeah. just, I don't Look, know. I mean, at least he's being, he is being let out by an actual judge. Since we've been making crime content, especially with the TV show stuff, I mean, I came across one, we did one case, a policeman down in Cape Town who was murdered in the early 2000s by some bank robbers. And um, he was shot 50-odd times on the side of the road. They caught a bunch of them. During tr in the build-up to the trial, three of them escaped. One of them was killed. Two of them were recaptured. So for all intents and purposes, five of them were charged with the murder of this guy and sentenced to life sentences. Now, 20 years later, the daughter of this cop was getting a call from correctional services to say, um, the two of these guys are kind of up for parole and there's a system, there's a process, the, um, the victim, um, what's it called? The victim with a victim, victim offender dialogue, the victim offender dialogue process. Do you want to be take part in it? And they wanted to take part because if you take part, then chances are the person will sit in jail for a little bit longer than they might have. Um, so they were like, okay, well, what about the three other guys? The three other guys have vanished. Mm. We've spoken to the NPA. We've spoken to correctional services. We've spoken to the police. Nobody knows where three of them are. They just vanished out of the, mm. out of the system. And it's not the first time we've heard that story of people mm. just kind of disappearing out of jail, out of correctional services. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so at least it's a judge making this decision. You know, I mean, I would say it's also the chances are if he's a wily guy like this, he's going to find his way just to bribe a guard to get out, you know? Yeah, yeah. So what happens thereafter? So like I said, he's in custody. Um, essentially, he does get sent for mental observation at Sturkfontein Hospital uh, to the west of Johannesburg, which is a government-run hospital that does forensic assessments for court purposes. And he goes there from about... 11th of June till 10th of July 2012, in other words, the year after the murder. He was released, obviously, in December 2011 from on, on bail. And we prepare for trial, which would have taken place in 2013, also thinking about May. But he's found fit by the by the psych psychiatric team. Remember, there's a team of people that assessed him, nursing staff, psychologists, two psychiatrists, uh, social workers, you name it. At this point, 
Can I ask you, because in your book you say that this is kind of one of the very important mm. cases in your career and it's really a standout case for you. And at this point, can you just explain to us a little bit of why that is? Because as we get into mm. the kind of the the exodus of this story and kind of where it actually gets to now because things start getting a bit nuts. Um, why is it why 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 is it such an important case? You know, I think because it was it was an unfair murder. I mean, nobody deserves to be murdered, firstly, but I suppose you can say that's the case of all cases, of all situations. And and this poor girl was trying to do everything in her, in her powers and with the, the legal system to to get away, to get protection, to survive. And she's just been let, up until what we've discussed now, she's been let down numerous times by that system. And, I mean, she's going to be let down a lot more, as, we, as you'll see as we progress through this case study. And it was just so damn unfair and then you have a guy who never once showed any remorse. Even until today, he still blames her for the fact that he killed her. And as you'll see, he took some steps as we get into the presentation, the, the talk, where he just again was trying to evade responsibility for doing this. And it's just, you know, he's a guy who just literally doesn't want to accept that he's if done something wrong. we can't even get the archetypal abuser who murders somebody in front of a crowd of people, we can't even get them locked up. <laughs> That's kind of, I kind of get where your frustration, if that's where your frustration is coming from, I mm. get it. Now talk to us about what happened to this guy from yeah. this point on and how he continues to manage to buck the system. Yeah, so we're basically preparing for trial. He's found fit to stand trial by the hospital and not having a mental illness during the incident. So perhaps we should also say, what, how did I get involved? Because mm. I get contacted probably six weeks after the incident um, by the first prosecutor who gets us on his table. And he was very smart because he'd attended some training that I presented about, you know, sort of the temporary insanity defense, or as we call it, non-pathological criminal capacity. He said, you know, I can see that if this guy doesn't plead guilty, it's going to go the route of one of those very complicated psychological defenses. You know, let me phone Gerard, who I had, you know, whose course I attended in, as a prosecutor, and see what he has to say. And I get in, I say, I agree with you 100%. This is going to go one of those routes of him kind of claim some like you say, temporary insanity type of defense. So I start to get involved and I see that the docket is not prepared for that because typically what happens when you've arrested a guy at the scene, the cops all go, great, open and shut case. I mean, he's arrested right next to her dead body. We've got CTV footage. This is open and shut. I don't need to do my work properly. That's actually what I hear when I hear someone say mm. open and shut. I'm, not, I'm about to not do things properly. Yeah. And also they gave it to a very inexperienced constable because like, well, pff, you know, this isn't a complicated case. He's arrested there. You know, we don't have to put our best detectives onto this. And I realized that if it's going to go the route of one of these defenses, they don't in the docket yet have all the necessary information. So I started to interview the various other witnesses who were there that there weren't statements from about his exact behavior from when they arrived onto the scene. What was he doing? What was he saying? So I started to take the necessary statements that would help refute or confirm any such defense in the future. So in essence, I kind of, in a way, took over the investigation, filling all of these gaps as to what is needed. Um, so basically, but once that's done, we were essentially waiting for the case to start, which would have been in, I think it was uh, May 2013, so literally two years after the murder. And on that day, we're all waiting in the courtroom, his lawyer's there, and he doesn't arrive. And I, we knew he'd been staying at his, at his mother, and I'd met the mother a few times in the process of, obviously, my, my inquiries and my investigations. And she was actually very cooperative. And she had said from the start, I knew one day I'm going to get a phone call saying that Gerard killed Andrea, because she knew what he was like. And she'd seen his jealous, controlling behavior, specifically in the time that um, 
that, that you know that that he had stayed with her over the years and was and his behavior with previous girlfriends mm-hmm. and um so i go to her because now we're wondering we say to this lawyer where, where is your client it's like i have no idea so we realize he ain't coming and we go to the mom who he she he had been staying with that was one of his bail conditions and she's like you know uh, yesterday he went off to go do some work in limpopo province and he hasn't come back and i could tell she wasn't being honest with us but I also knew at that point to sort of kick and scream and shout is not going to work. Mm. So we start to make our inquiries. We start to interview other people. He started dating someone else in this time that he would give him bail. He had a new girlfriend who at first didn't know who he was. He said to her, my name is Gerard Fenter, not Gerard Janssen van Vieren. And one day, he and Ger- she and Gerard are in the car, and he pulls up at the Boulder's Warehouse, and he says, I'm going to quickly buy something inside Boulder's Warehouse. And she says, that's okay, I'll stay in the car. And she starts to go through his cubbyhole, the glove compartment, and finds a driver's license with his picture. But it's not Gerard Fenter, it's Gerard Janssen van Vieren. Ah. So she then later on after goes and Googles, and she finds out exactly who he is and what he's standing trial for. But she still dates him. And in fact, they have twins thereafter. So we go speak to her, and she can tell she's not being cooperative and telling us what's what. And But a day or two later... This is why I don't do relationships. <laughs> A day or two later, I get a phone call from the mom again. And she says, look, you've got to come see me immediately. I have to tell you something. And I thought, okay, now we're going to hear the true story. So we speed over to her and have an interview with her. And she says, let me tell you, I feel I have to tell you what actually happened. So while he was awaiting trial, before he got bail, at eight months from May till about December of 2011, when he was in Johannesburg Central Prison in the awaiting trial section, he meets up in prison with two Brazilian nationals who themselves had been arrested, but for drug-related charges. And one of them was an ex-federal policeman from Brazil. And basically, long story short, they say to him, hey, dude, but hey, if you ever get out, come to Brazil. We'll help you. We'll sort you out. So after they, he gets bail at December 2011, coincidentally, their um, case was withdrawn against them, the two Brazilians. So they come for dinner one night at the mom's house, and they formulate further this, consolidate this plan of, if you can get to Brazil, we're going to help you. Um, so the mom gave us the name of the, those two Brazilians. Mm-hmm. Um, and she tells us exactly that he, Gerardo then online booked a ticket or on the phone booked a ticket to Brazil via uh, Dubai. Doesn't sound like mom is walking on the right side of the law. At that point, no. But you also have to understand her history of domestic violence towards her, etc. And the father was still alive and around. Fair enough. Um, and... She says to him that, and how he got a passport was that he, a friend of his or acquaintance of his, his, of his, he asked him to reapply for their acquaintance's own passport. And somehow they managed to put Gerard's picture into that passport application. So when the passport was issued, it was a real person with real details, but with someone else's photograph. In other words, Gerard's. As I said, he booked the ticket. He went into the bank and paid the tickets. We've got CCTV footage of him going into that particular bank and paying for the ticket that he booked online or over the phone. And then the day that he disappeared, which I think was a day or two before the trial, he drove down, his father drove him down to King Shaka Airport in, in Durban. And we have the CCTV footage of him getting on that plane and via Dubai going to Brazil. Now, South Africans don't need a visa for Brazil, so he could literally pitch up there. And he hooks up with his two colleagues. But the mother also gave us the phone number that he phoned her from once he arrived there saying, I'm safe, you know, okay. uh, everything's okay. And she gives us this information, which we then 
you know, obviously give to the Brazilian police. We contact the embassy here in South Africa. We meet with their federal, you know, their legal attaches who are federal policemen. They were very helpful. And essentially, by August, they arrest him one morning as he's walking down the street. What are, what are the extradition So we don't have an extradition Brazil? treaty with Brazil, but a lot of people think that means you can't be extradited from a country if you don't have a, have a, have a, have a um, treaty. That is not at all the case. The treaty just makes it easier that there are less hoops to jump through because it's, a lot of the, the issues are negotiated and discussed. So it's a lot faster if you have a, an extradition treaty, but it doesn't mean you can't if you don't have one. So I think that was maybe A, convenience, because he knew these guys could set him up. B, he doesn't need a, a, a visa. Um, and he th- maybe thought, well, I can't be extradited, you know, from yeah. back from Brazil. So essentially, he's arrested one morning walking down the street. He's charged with being in the country Where illegally. Where are we now? What year are we in when he's arrested? August 2013. So, so the same year that he disappeared. Yes, okay. A couple months later. Okay. So we're all happy. The father is ecstatic. The mother of Andrea is ecstatic and very grateful. And we're all, you know, chuffed. And we start the mm. procedures for the extradition. We've got advocate JJ Fonsale who was at the DPP, Director of Public Prosecutions in Johannesburg, he was the extradition guy. And he had done many well-known high-profile extraditions. So we're happy. Everything's sorted. Everything's there. Um, they convict him, as I said, for being in the country illegally. And I think they gave him like a, a one-and-a-half-year, two-year sentence. But they insisted that he serve that sentence before he comes back to South Africa. Now, normally, if we have someone that we need to extradite to another country because he's you know arrested for a serious crime... <clears throat> We won't insist that he serves whatever little tiny sentence here, because if that if that case is a more serious case, just get him locked up for life. You know, it's like that's a murder trial. You know, yeah. we're going to definitely not worry about you being in the country illegally or that you got into a fight and assault. You know, it, we're going to pretty much send you back there that they can deal with you in in a, in a more severe way. So, um, but besides that, we've we've got the extradition warrant of arrest that's being served upon him. So he's actually also sitting in custody because of an arrest warrant for the extradition. So there's two things keeping him in prison. So, but they insist, and we now go through this frustrating waiting period of him to go through that while, again, the extradition process Although is Although the thought of him sitting in a South American jail, which I'm sure is not the greatest. Yep. It's not terrible. Yeah, it's, it's not a nice place. At least you know where he is. You know, I know guys who've been awaiting extradition in the United States, and they're him. sitting in quite comfy, nice prisons. This is not yes, that. Yes, you know, yes, it's, yes. it's hell. So... um. What happens? I kind of leave the police in 2016, as you all know. I left in March 2016. Um, we're just waiting for him to be brought back. Mm-hmm. And then one day I get a phone call from my colleague saying, we need to go to Durko, the Foreign Affairs Office in what Department of International Relations and Cooperation, which is a new name for Foreign Affairs. We need the, to go there. In This is the case that's on your mind. When you leave cases behind as an investigator, that is something that you carry with you. It's not like you yeah. can leave those stories behind and leave the the people mm. that, that you've established Absolutely. relationships I mean, with behind. So it's something, and again, I think this goes, surely this adds to why it, why it's quite a meaningful case yep. to you because you want to be able to resolve those cases which started yep. when you were on active duty. Yeah, so I mean, I, I've gotten to know his mom and dad, her mom and dad, sorry, very relatively well. I've gotten to know his mom. 
And his dad hates me at this point because him, you know, Kharajan Sonfi and his dad are sort of two birds of a feather. And, but the mom, you know, I've had very good, you know, um, a relationship with, you know, in a professional relationship with. So, yeah, so in a sense, I know the case on a personal level. I mean, I'd never met Andrea, of course, and I didn't know her until she was murdered. Um, no, but you feel a degree of responsibility towards it and towards yeah. her. And, um, and, and also because, in a way, I kind of took over the case, having yeah. to prepare it for, the, for, for trial later on. So I get a call from my colleague who says, look, we need to come. We need to go to, to, the, to, to Foreign Affairs' head office where we're met with by the Brazilian people from the Brazilian embassy. And they say, well, very embarrassed to say, but he's been released. And we say, but how? What? We have an extradition warrant with you that he's arrested for on. Well, so he served his sentence and they let him out? Well, or yes. Or he was let well, out on good behavior or no. something like that? So what happened was is that one night a judge comes, a Brazilian judge goes to the prison and says, you need to release this man. His sentence is finished. And they said, but yes, but we have an extradition warrant that he's arrested for mm. pending his Gang- extradition. It's gangster stuff. Nope. He must be, I instruct you to release him. Corruption. That's corruption, isn't it? That's yeah. And they couldn't explain to us. They said this judge had no authority to do that. It was immediately reversed once, you know, the next day, once the, the main judge heard what had happened. But obviously he's gone. Uh, and he disappeared. So basically from pretty much early 2016, so chances are these two Brazilians he met in jail in South Africa really helpful for Gerard. Yeah, I mean, they definitely helped him to get set up initially. And I'm sure yeah. after he was released, yeah, I he, mean, they were helping him get set up again. In Brazil? Yeah, exactly. exactly. So that's it. So 2016, he's gone. I mean, of course, to tell that father, yeah. this is what happened. Um, it was just, for me, heartbreaking. And, of course, even more so for the family. Um, and so he's on the run, you know. And that was 2016. And kind of nothing really significant is happening until about 2020. So for four years, you know, you're following up on leads here and there. I'm out the police, so I'm not actively involved in the case, but my colleagues are, you know, trying to follow up here and there. But really nothing um, is going anywhere. Um, Until we get information in 2020, just after sort of COVID hit, obviously lockdown, et cetera, we start to get information, not only me, but the police start to get information that could lead to tracking him down. Mm. And essentially... Long story short, um, he is eventually located again in Brazil and arrested by the federal police. And within about, I think, was it six weeks, um, he's brought back to South Africa. Okay. Well, good. Eventually. 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 They get him. They get him back here. And all of that is encouraging. Well done, Brazil. Well done, federal Brazilian police yeah. are catching up with him eventually. And what was sad is in the meantime that Andrea's mother had passed away. So she oh. died knowing or that Gerard's somewhere on, out free and on the run. So she never unfortunately got that sense of justice to die with at least feeling that, you know, he's going to be brought to book. Yeah. Um, and now, of course, we have to go get ready for trial. You know, the same prosecutor that had been dealing with it all those years ago, uh, Edward Porskett, unfortunately, shortly before the trial was supposed to start, wasn't able to continue. So that was a bit sad because he'd been with it, you know, from the start. Paul had, and Paul Skitter had been one of the guys prosecuting the Devil's Dorp, you know, Kruger's Dorp, Devil's Dorp story case. Uh, okay. So a, I'd worked on him with multiple other cases, a highly competent uh, prosecutor. Uh, gets given to another prosecutor in the meantime, which I wasn't very comfortable with because I didn't think she really understood the case and the nature of what the issues were in this case. And thankfully, about, I think, a month before we actually were to set down to finally go on trial, it gets handed over to advocate Raline Barnard, who I also knew. Uh, if you read my, was it my first or second book, we spoke about Brian the Stalker. Mm. Um, 
no, I think it was the second book, uh, in that one chapter when I talk about how I got someone, a high court prosecutor, to review the charge sheet because I wasn't happy with the charge sheet that the magistrate's court prosecutor put together. That was actually, it turns out, and I forgot about that, was actually really important. But she had, was a very good, qualified, experienced prosecutor. And she really, you could see, understood what the nuances of this mm. prosecution was going to be about, the mental Cause, health issues. Because he really tries to duck and dive now using... yeah arguments that are very much in your universe in your yep. wheelhouse to try and get out of this bike so he's trying to get taken to the loony bin yep. and not sun city and exactly as that very first prosecutor who saw the docket within weeks of the case who contacted me to say look Jerry, i think you should get involved because this is going to go he, he was right it went exactly that route with him trying to bring in some my mind at the time was not you know i was not in control of my behaviors defense which would have meant if successful, either he could be completely discharged and found not guilty for temporary insanity, or if anything, he might have gone back to a hospital as opposed to a prison to serve his sentence. It is very interesting in the case, and maybe you can just do the, you know, kind of do a, a brief version of this, is to lay out kind of what the rationale is that he was acting, you know, he knew what he was doing, yep. that he could not be declared mentally unfit for trial or what have you could you lay out a little bit of that argument and also talk about this other guy that turns up the um the defense yep. um psychologist yep. who seemed quite out of his depth yeah <clears throat> so we kind of suspected that, that they were going to go the route of raising some kind of psychological defense to call it that and we obviously present the state's case. You know, they admitted a lot of evidence saying, yes, we don't deny he was the one that stabbed her, et cetera, et cetera, and the autopsy report is correct. So really, we just really had to hash out his mental state at the time. So the, the prosecution obviously calls Dr. Leon Fine, who was a retired at that point, but a very experienced forensic psychiatrist who had done the observation back in, uh, was it uh, 2012, with one of the two psychiatrists who wrote the report, and says this guy has no diagnosis, that affects his ability to determine right from wrong back then. He can stand trial. He's criminally responsible from a mental health point of view for what he did. Um, this is Dr. Leon Fine. Fine. Yes, yes. They also call, for example, the paramedic who treated, who was present at the scene, who says, you know, at one point, Gerard turns to him while he's lying next to Andrea's body and says to Gerard, says to the paramedic, is she dead yet? Mm. Not, geez, what happened? What's going on? Is she okay? but is she dead yet? And that's a very, very specific, and that's meaning like I'm waiting for her to die as she died yet, and I know what, I've, what has happened. You know, It's not like, my goodness, what's going on around me. And how you know, when the, one of the colonels arrived on the scene of the day of the incident, he says, she said, when she understands what the situation is, she said, well, if he's injured and he's a suspect, he needs to go to Leratong Hospital because we have a ward where we keep suspects under police guard. Mm. And he's like, no, 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 I've got medical aid. I need to go to this hospital, private hospital. So he's in touch with his surroundings. Mm -hmm. uh, and other sort of things he was saying when a one witness ran up and said, my God, what happened? He's like, I stabbed her because she was screaming. So now all those little tiny little things, which fortunately, because I was involved right in the beginning, we gathered that stuff in statements from these witnesses. It's not like we have to ask them 10 years later or more, can you remember what he said? Mm. So those little bits and pieces, what we're trying to illustrate is that at the time of the incident, he was not out of touch with reality. Mm. He's aware of his surroundings. He knew what had happened. The fact that you afterwards are saying, I don't remember anything, because he's saying, I don't remember anything. 
you know, which is part of his defense of like, I wasn't in control of my behavior at the time because of a, what we would refer to in American terminology, temporary insanity. What, what is non-path? So, so obviously different legal systems come up with fancy different terms to describe essentially what is a temporary insanity. But essentially, when a person is, commits a crime, you want to look at, was he in control of his behavior? And there can be a few reasons why not. So one of them would might be mental illness. If I am schizophrenic and I'm psychotic at the time and I'm hearing voices, the voice is telling me, Paul's coming to kill me, not, not to give me a cup of coffee because he's my buddy, and you need to kill him because he's, gonna, he's an alien in Paul's body that's going to do something to you. Clearly, you could say that the person is not in control of their behavior. They can't determine right from wrong. They're out of touch with reality. We can't hold you criminally responsible for your behaviors. And you, if the court agreed with that after an assessment, you would then go to a psychiatric hospital to be treated. And you're not going there for punishment because we can't punish you if you are not in control of your behavior at the time. It's not a voluntary act of what you did. It was you, but it was not voluntary because you, you weren't in control of your behavior. And then you go to a psychiatric hospital as a forensic patient, but not as punishment, but as to treat you. And once you're okay, you're released back into society. And that could be five years, it could be one year. But the other option is that you're not in control of your behavior, not because of a mental illness like say schizophrenia, but because of a temporary emotional state that was fleeting in nature. And that's when we talk about non-pathological, in other words, not due to pathology, meaning like schizophrenia, temporary criminal capacity or non-path. So that the legal system in South Africa has also referred to that as automatism, in uh, sane automatism, because uh, it's not due to mental illness. And that's the kind of terminology that the courts kind of throw around. And unfortunately, it's a, it's a thing that the courts haven't themselves quite properly defined yet. What are the criteria? What exactly is it? So it's one of those defenses where you get judgments that are quite varied. Court A might see it this way and not convict the guy. Court B might see it this way and release the guy or convict uh, him. How, how often have you seen a court convinced so in my cases that I, and I worked on a handful of these over the years that I was in the police, uh, it was never successful in the incidences where I was involved. I'm not saying because I was involved, but <laughs> it was never a success. So the court and, and acknowledges that it's a very difficult defense to use and it's very rarely successful. Sure. But you still do get some weird judgments where you think, how on earth could they have let him go saying that that was a non-path scenario? So it's a risky defense and one does not lightly try it because if it fails, then you're going to get no sympathy from the court. And if um, you find yourself in this circumstance and Gerard happens to be sitting on the other side of the room from you, just just might as well throw in the towel right there <laughs> and then because it's got a 100% track record. Um, what is intermittent explosive disorder? Because it seems yep. like this is this is one of these non-path kind of well issue uh, problems that, and this is what the defense referred to quite a lot, this IED or yeah. intermittent explosive disorder. I think so maybe this, I have it. This was, this was kind of the, the again, illustrating where legal people don't understand the concepts. Because what they said their defense was going to be is that uh, we believe our, our clients suffered from a, non, from a non-pathological criminal capacity at the time of the incident due to intermittent explosive disorder which is actually contradictory because intermittent explosive disorder is a diagnosis. Okay. It's a pathology. So yeah. you can't say non-path and also He's got cancer because of the cancer. Yeah, so it's really, <laughs> it's, it's, what they should have said is, we believe he wasn't in control of his behavior due to 
intermittent explosive disorder. And then it would have been a, a pathology defense. Yes. Not a temporary insanity because it's not temporary. Intermittent okay. explosive disorder is not temporary. It's sure. you have it. It comes, you know, it fluctuates in its intensity maybe. Yes. Or today you have an outburst, tomorrow you don't. Yeah. So it is one of those things where they're using non-path, but the basis of the non-path is not like he was provoked or he just lost his shit, to put it, put it that yeah. way. Or he was having a bad day and then the sort of circumstances of events came upon him yeah. and just lost it. You know, you're saying it was because of this disorder he has. So it actually it was legally, well, from a psychologist's point of view, you're talking about two opposing types of terms. Yes. But that's and I, I understand that this psychologist had not had the opportunity to speak to um, Gerard, that he was working off the basis of information provided to him solely by the defense the law, team. Yeah. So that's what they came with. So we knew how to prepare. Uh, we called, as I said, Leon Fine to represent the observation team. He said, look, this guy's no disorders. You know, there's no intermittent. He's yet. been Nothing. with a team at Sterkventin for a month, processing it. You know, you know, processing him and observing him. Twenty-four hours a day. Exactly. So he, he was he was the first witness. Then we called all these other witnesses that I said a moment ago who could comment on his behavior: the paramedic, the the the, the bystanders, mm -hmm. the colonel who arrived, the security guard, uh, all those people to say. But at the time, this is how he was behaving. Um, then they closed the state's case and they call, and the defense, the only person the defense called, they didn't call Gerard because, again, a lot of criminal cases go ahead without the accused being called, and that's their right not to have to testify. And the courts are warned, you can't automatically draw a negative conclusion by the fact that the accused person isn't testifying. But they called Dr. Weinkove, who was a retired, I think it was said he was 77-year-old psychiatrist, who in his career had done, I think, two more, two previous criminal cases. With this, well, I think one of them was with the same attorney that briefed him in this case, who was representing Francois Hubert, who was representing Gerard. Um, it was very clear, and this is also what the judge says, so it's not my opinion, mm -hmm. that he was not an expert in forensic matters. Let well, alone, he was judged to be not an expert for the sake yeah, of the case, wasn't he? found that he was unreliable so his, evidence. So his evidence was not allowed to be used for consideration in the... Yeah. In the who, I think, as the, as the judge said was almost like naively amazed by this case and was trying to find an explanation why he did it. And that's not how you do a forensic assessment. You don't mm. try to find a psychiatric explanation. You look for symptoms. And yeah. if there are no symptoms, then there is no psychiatric explanation. Yes. And even the presence of a disorder doesn't mean that's why the person committed this crime. Yeah. There has to be that legal nexus between the crime and the actual criminal act. I mean, had he even considered that it could be or debunked other types of disorders that it might have been? Or um, no, because that's uh, interesting because he said, well, I don't think the Dr. Fine and the observation team considered this. But this guy didn't consider anything else except IED. He didn't even consider that possibly this was just domestic violence. And in yes. fact, at one point he said he thinks that all domestic violence is actually intermittent explosive disorder, which is it's like yeah. what you're saying is people aren't responsible for their behavior when mm -hmm. they go and beat up their wives, which is hugely controversial and very, very, you know, most people would say, you just can't say that. Um, just, yeah. You're pathologizing domestic violence that it's not that person's fault. That is bizarre. <laughs> yeah. So he had a very rough time in cross-examination. Um, he admitted he's not an expert on IED. He doesn't think he's ever diagnosed IED before. Um, and really, as we were not, as we were expecting, you know, that his, his evidence was not going to hold much sway. But again, if we didn't have such a great prosecutor, um, and again, a, advised by me and advised by Dr. Fine, if we had a weaker prosecutor, this might have been a very different story. Um, and, and we hadn't had, say, me who was from the start knowing what we need to gather evidentially to refute or confirm such a potential um, 
defense later on. So the judge, like you say, w- was very critical of, of, of Dr. Weinkove and basically just excluded his in evidence in its entirety. And then said, in these types of defenses that they were raising, although there's not an expectation that the, uh, not an, that there's not an expectation that the accused has to testify in general, in these cases, you kind of do. Because you need to say, you know, you can't introduce evidence via your lawyer. My client says that he doesn't remember. My client says this, that, and the other. And the court said, actually, in this case, he did need to get into that witness box and say what happened, what he remembered and what he didn't remember. Um, and, he, and also, i.e., that, that, that temporary state would have been only for the stabbing. What about the noose around the car? That would have happened long before All of the, other the IED or the, the non-path episode. Behavior. What about the blood at her house? Yeah. He could have come to explain that. What about the blood in her, her flat, which would have occurred not when he was in a state of this temporary non-pathological state, a temporary insanity state where he would have an amnesia. And he didn't come and explain that. So that was, again, critical against him, which I think was bad legal representation um, by, the, you know, by his lawyers. So a lesson here is that... Things are only obvious if there's an effective team presenting them yep. as such. And if you, in another circumstance where you'd had a less capable or competent prosecution team, he could have continued to to avoid taking accountability for his action. Yep. What was his? What was his? Yep. Um, what was the verdict? So the. Um the Brazilians in the extradition agreement said they'll extradite him as long as the prosecution won't request longer than a 30-year jail sentence. Um, that's probably because in Brazil that's the maximum length for a murder. You know, often we won't extradite somebody to a country if they're going to get longer than for a sentence than we would have given them here. And definitely if that country like the USA has a death sentence and that's what this person is potentially facing, we would say, we're not going to extradite him unless you guarantee us he won't be given the death sentence. Yes. Which I suppose you can say it's you're trying to enforce your values on another country. You know, you know if, how can we say we don't have the death sentence here where we knowingly let someone back to a different country where they're going to get killed yes. or death sentence? So I kind of get the argument. Um, frustrating because, you know, this was essentially, you should have been facing a mer- uh, life for this. Mm. But the judge pointed out that the extradition agreement just says that the prosecution won't request life sentence. Not oh, that see. the judge is bound. And that comes to also with our wonderful democracy, separation of powers. You know, f- foreign so affairs can can't say... You asked or not. Foreign affairs can't say mm-hmm. and bind the judiciary to a sentence. Ah, yeah. Separation of powers. Yes. So the judge pointed that out, and, and the prosecution, uh, Raleen Barnard, didn't ask for life. She said, my lord, I request 29 years sentence. And the judge said, thank you very much. And he came back and said, this was a premeditated murder, not pre-planned in the sense that he sat there for days, how am I going to kill her on Friday night? Mm. But premeditated in the sense when he ran after her with that knife and what ha- if you look at what happened back at his flat, mm. where this incident must have started, he said, this was premeditated. Therefore, I'm going to give you life and that's what he's currently facing i did hear from the prosecutor on friday when i saw her again um, that he is going to appeal not just the length of his sentence probably arguing that the extradition agreement said one thing um, but also his actual conviction so i'd love to see 
what his arguments are going to be, definitely for his conviction, because, you know, what's he going to say? My evidence of my psychiatrist was wrongly excluded. Um, but I guess he's just a chancer trying to take a chance, you know. So we'll see. But I don't think he's going to be successful in either reducing his length of sentence or his, um, or his actual conviction. One of those guys that you want to keep, keep an eye on, Gerard. Just yeah, every sure. once a year, just check in with correctional services. Is he still there? Uh, absolutely. Um, you know? And I kind of think he's, he's obviously kind of a guy, wily character. He's the kind of guy that in prison, he's probably going to do well because he's an IT guru. He's probably going to offer to fix everybody's computers in prison mm. and wangle himself a, a cushy scenario and win favor with everybody. That I really so, do yeah. fear that when he comes up for parole, they're all going to think he's fantastic. Yeah. That's, I think, a realistic possibility and my concern because he's, I, let me put it very carefully, he's a very manip manip manipulative and conning type of person. Mm. I mean, we saw that is all, I mean, how we got out the country the first time around that he can bullshit people very well. And a massive lack of compassion. Yeah, uh, not accepting responsibility for what he's done. Yeah. That, you know, he was wrong. He shouldn't have done this. Maybe there were pressures that were pushing him this way or the other, but ultimately, you're in control of yourself and you shouldn't have done this. And he, he does not want to accept responsibility for that, even till today. Yeah. He, it's, he still views it as, she's dead, it's her fault, not his. You do, of course, though, have the reward that one of those cases that you that could have been left behind when you left the police service, you had the opportunity to stay involved and to see it to a good conclusion. And hopefully the, the you know, the correctional services will keep him under lock and key for a fair amount of time. Um, of course, we all know in South Africa that in 25 years, he'll come up for parole regardless, won't he? Yeah, um, so he'll have his hearings, uh, whether he'll get it. Like I said, I do have a fear and concern that if he does behave in his sort of very charming, schmarmy, manipulative way, he probably will get parole at 25 years from now. Yeah. But also then he will be about, I think he's now 40, early 40s, he will be 60, 65. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, 25, that's kind of the best we can hope for in South Africa, no matter yeah. what you do, really, isn't it? Um, unless you're one of the really, really out there serial killer types, um, or if you murdered somebody that's high profile and in the, well, even then, I mean, doesn't even mm. get into Oscar. Um, all right, well, a great case um, to talk about, our first time back, um, and nice to be able to talk about one which was such a big kind of journey for yourself. The, the scary thing is that at the end of a conversation like this, with all the lessons you learn about and all the kind of takeouts that this is a, a really classic case of domestic abuse where there was a lot of awareness w with family, etc., about what was the reality in this woman's life. I mean, the mom of, 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 of Gerard, Gerard even um, felt that one day she was going to get a call that her son had committed a, a, an act of violence against Andrea and possibly even killed her. Um, so I'm left with the question is, what do you kind of take away from this crime that, that people who are suffering domestic abuse, who are listening to this, might be able to use to their benefit if they're in South Africa and have these kinds of issues? And the, the sad thing is that it's like, I mean, there's not really much you can say to people. Yeah, I mean, there's, there have been success stories where protection orders worked and the police responded and they did stop the person from his behavior. But there's a lot of success, a, a lot of failure stories. So it's really difficult 
I can tell you what the options are. I can't tell you what the outcome is going to be, or even the likely outcome. Yeah, you have to kind of keep a track of but exactly what laws are being broken by the person that is mm. committing these acts against and you. And evidence of it. My advice to people is simply, you just can't afford to get into any kind of a relationship mm. from day one where there's any evidence controlling of behavior, these kinds of controlling you know, who behavior. You, where you, what you're wearing, where you're going to. Someone's looking on your cell phone, exactly. Somebody's trying to tell you what to wear like you say somebody Isolating is you from friends and family walk away then you have to leave as soon as you can because the deeper into the rabbit hole you get you know you can find yourself screaming for help surrounded by people and still and, lose your life and know what the hook is in the beginning these guys can be exactly what you want in a partner but it changes but you start to think but that's but i know what he can be i've seen it but you start to almost cling on to that little glimmer and not noticing that glimmer is like a star in a night, dark night sky. Yeah. And they, they, that's almost what keeps them stuck there is that there is this wonderful side. But unfortunately, that is not what you are seeing. And when the time you do get to that point, it's, it's almost like too late. Leave right now. Yeah. Leave right now. That's the only advice we can give Because they're not going to change. They're not going to change and you don't want to join the lottery that is the justice system. Mm. And with your life. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Gerard. We'll be back next week for another conversation. Please do get in touch with us on social media and, uh, you know, let us know if you have any feedback. Um, let me know if I've been talking too much again. <laughs> I've really got a complex about talking too much from um, some feedback we get. Um, I'm just going to try to stop doing it. I'm going to stop doing it right now. Thanks, Gerard. Cheers, Paul. See you next week. Thanks, Bye. listeners. Mm-hmm.